The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in London and grew up attending non-such high school for girls, before graduating with a BA in Philosophy, Politics and Economics from the University of Oxford. Whilst there, she was editor of the University newspaper, and within years of graduating she had been awarded Young Journalist of the Year for her coverage of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, where she lived for two years in Peshawar. It would be the first of many awards. Since then, she has been based in Islamabad and Rio de Janeiro for the Financial Times and Johannesburg and Washington DC for the Sunday Times. She has covered wars from Iraq to Libya, Angola to Syria and journeyed to the far reach of the Amazon to visit remote tribes. She has been ambushed by the Taliban, deported from Pakistan after uncovering evidence of a covert operation by rogue elements in the ISI narrowly escaped a suicide bombing and was on Benazir Bhutto's bus when it was blown up. In 2013, she was awarded an OBE by the Queen for services to journalism, and in 2016, she won the Foreign Press Association Award for Feature Story of the Year for an article on girls in Nigeria. Last year, she was named Feature Writer of the Year in the National Press Awards. Now Chief Foreign Correspondent for the Sunday Times, she is also known for her coverage and advocacy for women in war zones and her latest book is Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, War Through the Lives of Women. So thank you very much for joining us today, Christina. We really appreciate it. Now on this podcast, we begin with a question that sometimes receives a mixed reaction, which is, would you describe your childhood as a happy one? Hmm. Well, it's nice to be here. Thank you. And... That's difficult, really, for me to say. I guess I was happy. I was always in trouble at school, and I always grew up with a sense that more exciting things were happening elsewhere from where I lived. So I was actually born in Morden, which is the southernmost stop of the Northern Line. And then when I was about 10, we moved to a place called Carshorton Beaches, which was a bit posher. But I just felt like I lived on the edge of London, that there was sort of exciting things happening. And I was very into music and used to spend all the money that I earned working in a newsagents to buy tickets for gigs in, in London and was always kind of missing the last train home. <laughs> and so, as I said, always in trouble at school for kind of silly things, really, like doing plays that were based on Monty Python and things that the school didn't approve of. <laughs> what type of music were you into at this age? Are we talking like goth, headbanger, something else? Well, no, to be honest, I mean, it was the 80s, so new romantic. I had the big hair, the lazy blouses, and I was obsessed by somebody called Hazel O'Connor and her saxophonist, Wesley McGugan. And I used to go to The Cure and The Jam and Echo and the Bunnymen and Duran Duran. It was a great time for music. So a free spirit from a young age. Um, did you have any early career ambitions? I read that one of the things that you were quite interested in when you were younger was poetry. I always wanted to write, always. I loved writing and actually won a poetry competition when I was six at school. And What is a six-year-old poem? Uh, it was it's... about fire. I don't think it was... <laughs> 
something that needs to be rediscovered. But, but yeah, I always wanted to write, but I was always sort of told at high school that writing wasn't a career. And I think my parents also thought that you should do a job that was some actual proper job, like being a pharmacist or something that they could understand what I was doing. We're obviously going to get onto your career, but I wondered, um, did you travel much at a young age? Was that something that was in your life much with your parents? No, we we used to go to Blackpool every year. And when I was a bit older, we started, we used to go on a package holiday every year, like to Italy or Spain. So that was exciting. And we used to, because it was long before the time of internet, we used to write to the tourist office and all these maps and leaflets would come and it all seemed very exotic. But mostly my interest, I think, in places far away was through reading. I read avidly, used to go to the library every Saturday when my parents were shopping. And we used to, I mean, I don't think they exist anymore, but a mobile library truck used to come once a week around the corner. And so I just read all the time about everything. And I I think I, I saw myself as being a kind of explorer, except that most places had already been <laughs> discovered. Were you reading kind of novels which obviously brought places to life? Or were you reading almost, you know, non-fiction about parts of the world? No, more fiction. I read everything, historical fiction, science fiction. I was not very discerning. And, and my parents read a lot, but they weren't, how to say, I mean, my dad left school at 14. Um, my mum had left school without any A-levels. And so they weren't very educated people, but they, they read a lot. They cared about reading. Now, you went on to study philosophy, politics and economics, also known as PPE, at Oxford. Now, we've had quite a few people on this podcast who studied that and they tend to go on to be politicians. Um, (laughs) So what was your reason for picking what's a very competitive degree, but also one which uh, has a bit of a reputation these days? uh, Well, to be honest, I didn't go to do PPE. I went to do chemistry, which I hated. And at school, my best subject was English and history and languages. But I was at uh, all girls grammar school. And this makes me quite angry now when I look back. But you were basically, if you were bright, they pushed you into doing science subjects and arts was seen as what people did if they couldn't do science. So I ended up doing chemistry, physics and maths A-level, which I hated actually. And then when I applied to university, I was a bit stuck because then chemistry seemed the least of those evils. And so I arrived in Oxford to do chemistry, but I really didn't like it. I hated the smell of the organic chemistry labs and I think to go to lectures and things. So I tried to switch after a couple of weeks and they made me do a year actually, but then the chemistry people seemed quite happy for me to switch. And to be completely honest, PPE was something that was easier to switch to than other subjects because you didn't have to have like you couldn't really switch to history if you hadn't done history a level and so that's why I switched to PPE. What I like about this account is obviously you didn't like the exams that you in a way were pushed into doing but you obviously did very well in them (laughs) because you still managed to get into Oxford. (laughs) So so face with science something you didn't want to do I presume you still got A's? Yes although I was lucky because I actually because my school didn't have any teaching for Oxbridge or anything like that there was a scheme where you could apply and not do the exams and so I applied under that scheme 
And to be honest, I only applied to Oxford because I wanted to go to Bristol and I thought they'd be impressed if I had Oxford on the top of my form. But when I went to do the interview, I actually absolutely fell in love with it and then thought, I really want to come here. And how did you find PPE, a subject you never intended to do, that lots of people dream of doing and find very hard to do? Was it just good because it was better than chemistry or or what parts did you particularly enjoy? Well, it was much better than chemistry and I liked the philosophy. I thought it was really interesting. That's very philosophy. Yeah, and actually I never did the economics because I switched after a year. So I I have a degree in PPE, but I've only done PP. And then were you ever involved in the student politics scene? Because I know you're involved in student journalism, but just from your classmates in the PPE subject, I wonder if it... Did you ever get involved in student politics or see much of the side? No, I mean, I obviously had a lot of connection with it because of the student journalism. So I got to know a lot of the people involved in politics, um, some of whom have ended up running our country for good or ill. And are there Um, any names you would recommend? Well, I mean, a lot of people were there at the same time. So Boris, I guess, was a, a couple of years older. I think David Cameron must have been there in my last year. And it's interesting because some of these people, even though I edited the paper, were not actually kind of people very involved in politics at that time. Other people were... And in terms of getting involved with student journalism, I read that you got taken to a cheese and wine party for the university newspaper and before you know it, you're kind of signed up and become editor. Is that a fast-track version of what happened? it's a slightly (laughs) abbreviated version. Um, But the cheese and wine party is true. Basically... I'd never thought about journalism. My parents used to get the Daily Mail, mostly because my dad used to bet on the horses. And I, so I'd never had any contact with journalists. But as I told you, I really wanted to write. So, and I'd imagined, I guess, leaving university and going and living in a a garret somewhere and writing my great novel but one day a friend was going to a cheese and wine party and asked me if I wanted to go and you know student free cheese and wine <laughs> so I went and it was for Chartwell the university paper and the editor and different section editors all spoke about their what they did and it just sounded really interesting so I signed up and eventually became editor after doing various other jobs and I suppose in a way or it's what I've found a bit is if you like writing journalism suddenly seems yes it's competitive but much more achievable way of becoming a paid writer than perhaps the the far-flung novel well also I kind of I'm very interested and my mum would say I was nosy and what other people were doing so it was I realized this was actually a good way of being able to sort of go and ask awkward questions of people and learn about completely different things and and then write about it now I want to obviously talk about how you go from Oxford to a career in journalism and you early on as I mentioned in the introduction won an award young journalist of the year for coverage of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan but how did how did that journey begin because I think a lot of people when they're talking about a career in journalism think oh I'll go and intern times that they have me if not perhaps a b2b and and that's and that's the routine so I've read that it began with an invite to a wedding in Pakistan. Yeah, everything in my life has sort of happened slightly by accident, I think. I think that's one of my great sort of mottos in life, to be very open to opportunities. And I 
did intern when I left university at the FT for it was supposed to be for a couple of weeks in the summer but it kept getting extended because people were on holiday and and it was great it was really good introduction although I didn't quite these were the days when people used to go for very long lunches so I found it quite difficult to understand how the paper really got produced because people arrived quite late then had a meeting then went for a really long quite alcoholic lunch and then came back briefly and then left again to go to the pub but somehow a newspaper was produced so and I was very impressed by the foreign correspondents when they came back because they looked exotic they kind of came back carrying satchels of foreign newspapers and had sort of long hair they were I have to say almost all men but and spoke foreign languages on the phone and I thought this was all very impressive so I thought I'd like to do that but while I was there and I had this obsession about India I'd read a lot about India and had traveled there as a student and one day the foreign editor said to me that he was supposed to be going to a lunch of South Asian politicians and he couldn't go last minute so he said you're always going on about India why don't you go so I went to this lunch and they were expecting the foreign editor and they got the intern but they were very nice to me and I sat next to somebody who was secretary general for the Pakistan People's Party which was the party of Benazir Bhutto and who was at that time living in exile in London because Pakistan as military dictatorship so he asked me if I'd like to interview her and of course I said yes so he arranged for me to do that and so it was my first big interview really other than Arnold Schwarzenegger who I'd interviewed when I was at university and so I went to interview her and the day I interviewed her was the day she announced her engagement so her flat was full of the most amazing bouquets of flowers I'd never seen so many and anyway, I then got a job actually at Central TV in Birmingham as uh, one of their first trainee journalists, which was also a bit of an accident because I didn't really want to be a TV journalist, but it was really good training. I actually think TV is really good training for newspaper journalists because it makes you kind of realise you've got to grab the attention of people. And so I was working there And one day came home and there was this most beautiful invitation on my doorstep, which was to Benazir's wedding in Pakistan. Um, And I'd never been to Pakistan and never been to a kind of grand wedding. So, of course, I said yes, but I didn't really have any money because it was just starting out. And she was really sweet because she arranged for me to stay with her secretary. So I didn't have to pay for a hotel And so I went to Pakistan. And when I look back, I think that the people working in Central TV must have thought this was very strange. Because first of all, they didn't really like, I think, having trainee that had come straight from university because they'd all work through local papers and radio and TV. So I turn up and wearing sort of high heels and mini skirts and smoking pretentious Cartier cigarettes in a um, cigarette holder, which I thought was the height of sophistication. And then I come in one day and say, oh, I've been invited to Benazir Bhutto's wedding, can I have some time off? So I went to this wedding and it was just the most amazing introduction to Pakistan. It was just so colourful. It was like something out of Arabian Nights. And also being who she was it was really political and I met all these people who told me how they had been tortured and arrested and tear gassed by the military regime 
and you know a lot of them were not much older than me and I was astonished I mean the most dangerous thing I had ever done was coming back from those gigs in London late at night and so I just was completely fascinated and thought I didn't really want to go back to covering local news in Birmingham so I came back and gave him my notice and went to live in Pakistan and start freelancing. Were your colleagues particularly surprised when you gave in your notice or do you think they'd read the writing on the wall when you went to Menazib Beach's I think I was probably not thought of as a great loss to television. One of the last stories I did was a man who turned his car back to front so it looked like it was going forwards when it was going backwards. So you moved to Pakistan, you live in Peshawar. At that point, are you a freelance or are you getting back in touch with the FT? How do you suddenly go about, I suppose, financially making that workable? So I went to talk to foreign editors of newspapers before I went. And to be honest, nobody was really interested in Pakistan because they all said, oh, General Zia, the dictator had been in power for 11 and a half years and nothing was going to change. And I said, no, but Benazir has gone back and she's going to take him on and topple him. (laughs) They just looked at me like I was mad. But some of them said we are interested in Afghanistan because at that time it was under Soviet occupation. So that's why I ended up going to live in Peshawar on the border near Afghanistan and going in and out with the Mujahideen. And the only paper I really had any agreement with, which was quite a vague agreement, was with the Financial Times, which you may imagine was not necessarily that interested in what the Mujahideen were were doing in Afghanistan but actually you know really supported me and I wrote a lot for them about what was happening. Yes we had um, a female journalist on the podcast a while ago who's done a lot working in Yemen saying it is tricky in the sense that there are countries that you often are encouraged to go to because it's where there are more stories but sometimes the countries that was she found that she wanted to be in are not where there are too many commissions. So well, I think there's a lot of luck in this, right? You can be the best foreign correspondent in the world, but if you go somewhere where nothing's happening, then there's nothing for you to write about. And how did winning that award change your career? Did it change your career? To be completely honest, I mean, at that time, it was so different to now. So there was no internet, no mobile phones. When I filed my stories, which was by telex or dictating to copy and would involve having to call an operator and probably bribing them. And it was really like 90% of my job was the logistics getting the story back. And so I never saw the papers that I wrote for. I didn't see what other people were writing. I had no idea whether what I did was different to other people or good or bad or what anybody thought so so from that point of view it was great to win the award because then it was like oh it must be doing something okay but I was completely caught up in the story I wasn't really thinking and I came back for the the press awards but then was sort of wanted to go straight back and not really so I did some editors asked me asked to meet me and I was actually just really keen to just be back in the field and doing what I was doing. Did it help a bit in terms then of of commissions and getting other places to give you work or or do you think that came more from just being there? Like I said to you there's a lot of luck involved and so what happened to me was I hadn't been there that long when General Zia was killed in this mysterious air crash and suddenly 
Pakistan was a huge story and I was one of the only journalists there. So I actually was on News at 10 on their first ever satellite link, was, and, which they didn't know if it would work, which was from on top of a roof in Peshawar to Sandy Gore, who was back in London. And so suddenly, actually, I was getting loads of work because no one had anyone there. And so I was writing for Time magazine. I was like the Daily Express's our girl in Afghanistan. And so, so strange. Yeah. It was a bit of being in the right place at the right time. But I suppose when you're, when you're reporting on things that will make the news in, in these countries, it tends not to be great news <laughs> by, by definition. Yes, um, I often think that it's, you know, not good for people when I come into their country. I mean, something is going wrong. Now, you're reporting on Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's clearly a, a main thread in your career. But I wondered for listeners if you could just talk us through, I suppose, from there, I mean, the, the various places you, you have reported on, and I suppose the, the first stage of your career. Yeah. Well, sadly for me, I got deported from Pakistan because of something that I'd written about uh, what ISI, the military intelligence, was doing. And and they basically run the country. And so that was very frustrating because I was, you know, so involved in covering that story. And so I came back to London and actually worked for a little while in Westminster for the FT, which was quite funny because in Pakistan, I was used to just turning up at ministers' houses to interview them. And I kind of thought that was how it worked here. And the political editor explained to me that you can't just turn up somewhere. Although I did always think you should have let me try because maybe it might have worked. But um, anyway, so I did that for a bit. Then they sent me to um, Brazil to be South America correspondent, which I had no experience in. I'd never been, and I did explain that to the editor but they didn't seem to mind and I thought well okay if they don't mind I so I arrived in Rio and I have to say when I arrived there I just thought this is the most beautiful place I have ever seen in my life I loved it and it was a huge change I was 25 and I had been you know in Pakistan and Afghanistan so you know very conservative society and very careful how I dressed and suddenly I was in a place where people went to work in you know tiny shorts and so Rio was just wonderful and again I hadn't been there very long when the newly elected president, whose name was Fernando Collor, got into all sorts of trouble and turned out to be very corrupt and to be involved in black magic and to be having an affair with his sister-in-law and all sorts of things. So it became quite a different story and he ended up being impeached and... But I loved it. And actually, I was there for three or four years. And then I suddenly just thought, if I don't leave now, I'm never going to leave. And actually, Rio is full of people who went there and never left. So I then went to Harvard for a year on a journalism fellowship, Neiman Fellowship, where I met my husband, who's Portuguese and was also on it. And then I was hired by the Sunday Times and I went to South Africa. And at that time, Nelson Mandela had just taken over. So it was the end of apartheid and it was fascinating to be there. It was Africa correspondent, but most of what I was doing was South Africa. But then I had a bit of a falling out with the Sunday Times over something they did, which I thought was really wrong and so I left and when they say what that was <laughs> um, 
I think I can tell you this story, actually, because the people have all changed. I mean, basically, a news reporter came over who had befriended a British mercenary who'd been involved in fermenting black-on-black violence during the apartheid regime. And so they came with a kind of deal where this mercenary would show he'd been involved in killing or encouraging people to kill many people and that they would go and dig up some of the bodies. And I was rather horrified by this because I had spent a lot of time talking to people whose sons and daughters had been killed by the apartheid regime and at that time there was this truth and reconciliation commission and so the idea of just going and and lots of these people didn't know where their sons were buried so I thought if we're going to do this kind of story we needed to do it with working with some of the human rights organizations but it wasn't seen as that kind of story and the mercenary was basically going to be tell all this and then go back to the UK. And I thought that this was wrong, that this was a murderer. So I actually told the South African police where he was and he got arrested, which destroyed the Sunday Times story and meant that the correspondent who'd come over had to was in danger meant I was in danger so I had to we all had to sort of flee because he worked this man had worked with white extremist groups who were very angry but actually I was very impressed in a, a way with what, how the paper turned the story around because they then ran the story as the Sunday Times bringing this man to justice which wasn't really how the story had been planned anyway I thought I couldn't work for them so I left and went to live in Portugal with my husband. boyfriend who We're later <laughs> became my husband and wrote a book so I a, left journalism for a while were you in Porto or Lisbon or wherever we were in a little village called San Pedro de Sintra just outside Lisbon which was very pretty and near a castle which I used to walk to and I had my own turret that I used to <laughs> sit in these days you have to pay to go into it it's all quite different so you're in Portugal and at that point are you I suppose are are you a bit disillusioned with some of the journalism or what are you thinking in terms of your career I was very angry at what had happened but I had really enjoyed being a journalist and thought it was important and so I yeah and then actually one day Dominic Lawson who was then editor of the Sunday Telegraph came to Lisbon for a conference and which I went to I can't remember what it was about and so we spoke and I had written for him before when he was at the spectator and so he said to me you know kind of what are you doing here and why don't you come back to journalism so he gave me a job at the Sunday Telegraph as diplomatic correspondent I was a little bit worried about doing that job because my politics were a bit different to the Sunday Telegraph, but I thought it's fine because I'm doing foreign stories. But actually, the first thing that happened when I came back pretty much was Pinochet got arrested, and I ended up more or less becoming Pinochet correspondent because I spoke Spanish. I'd lived in South America, and they were very interested in that 
story so I spent a lot of time and in fact Dominic and I ended up interviewing General Pinochet which was fascinating and so I did that then eventually then the people changed who had been involved in that story at the Sunday Times and I then got hired back by the Sunday Times and I went there because it had the best foreign team in my view of any British paper and the journalists that I most admired people like John Swain and Mary Colvin were working for them and they broke lots of big foreign stories so I thought I wanted to be part of that and I mean frankly they invested more money in foreign than other people and it's no good being a foreign correspondent for a paper that can't afford to send you anywhere. When you're in a UK newsroom do you feel an itch to go back out into the field so to speak or yeah I mean I've traveled all the time so actually that's a very pertinent question this year because obviously with the pandemic I have never spent so much time in one place and (laughs) which has been quite difficult I've ended up actually reporting on the UK which is the first time really since I started out that I've ever done it And, and it's been fascinating actually but are you looking to next year and the perhaps easier travel yeah I just sent my foreign editor yesterday a long memo of ideas of places I wanted to go to because I also worry that we've become so focused on Covid and ourselves and also Brexit and all these other issues that we're not really very interested in the rest of the world so foreign coverage has been cut back a lot and you know these things are still happening around the world wars haven't stopped and we shouldn't stop covering all of these issues. I want to talk a little bit about obviously what I touched on the introduction with the quote from yourself about you know I suppose whether you were in danger when you were out there doing your job. I think it's pretty obvious to to anyone listening to this that you know a job in Westminster is a lot more it might have drama but it's a completely different level of risk there's very low risk compared to going to lots of these countries and you touch on the idea that often the most dangerous situations are not the ones that you expect to be the most dangerous so I was wondering are there any particular situations that stand out to you as when you know things went past the point of you know being okay that you know into, into risky territory there are a few when you read about your fascinating degree you know being ambushed by the taliban deported from pakistan which you touched on benazibuto's bus i wonder what what sticks out to you yeah i mean i i never set out to be a war correspondent as i told you everything sort of happened by accident and also i was very young when i started covering conflicts so and I, i've pretty much always done it so i don't think of myself as being particularly brave or anything I'm just interested in what's happening and actually I am much more interested in wars in what happens behind the lines and how people keep their lives together that's much more interesting to me than the actual bang bang so that doesn't necessarily involve being right in the middle of the action and to be honest it's photographers and cameramen who and camera people who take the most risks in these places because they have to be right in the thick of things we can hide behind walls and stuff but obviously you know it wars things happen so sometimes you do get caught up and Probably the most dangerous, well, I don't know if it was the most, the thing that was scariest was being in Helmand right at the beginning when the British troops went. And I was the first journalist to be embedded with combat troops with three para. 
And at that time, it wasn't being presented as a war. It was being spoken of as a reconstruction project. And the defense secretary at the time famously said that we, he hoped not a single shot would be fired. So we went off to this village one day from the base where I was. And at that point, they hadn't really seen any action and and so we went off in a whole load of vehicles and it was almost like we were going for a picnic because we were all sort of laughing and joking and then we left these vehicles outside we started walking into the village and and you pick up signals when you do this job a lot sometimes things don't feel right and you can't really explain why but you just know and and there are certain things so when we got into the village there were no children around which is really odd because kids always come and ask for candy and things and also there weren't many elders around and I think if I had been on my own I would have thought something is wrong here and I would have left but I was with the British army it wasn't I was just following them and so I did say to the commander, it seems odd that there aren't any more elders around. And he asked them and they said, oh, they're at the mosque praying. But actually, it wasn't prayer time. So we sat and talked to them. And again, they weren't Afghans are normally so hospitable. Everybody offers you tea and anything that they have, even though they have little. And these people didn't offer us anything. And then at the end of the meeting... They said, if you go out of the village that way, instead of the way we came in, there's a bridge and you won't have to. We'd had to jump over this canal and actually I fell in, (laughs) much to the amusement of the soldiers. So we went the way that they said and we I was literally had my notebook open the commander was saying to me well I think that went quite well didn't it and as he said that the first shots rang out and we left about 15 of the soldiers outside the village with the vehicles and big guns and they had come under contact as they radioed and we could hear firing but they were maybe a mile away And then as we stopped to try and understand what was happening, we came under fire. Everybody ran and jumped into these. There were all these ditches, irrigation ditches, and we jumped and we were all in different directions. It was very chaotic. I mean, people weren't even wearing helmets or anything. And all this firepower was coming over bullets and RPGs. And I actually dropped my notebook and then I tried to get it back. I started climbing back out of the ditch and I was almost hit by an RPG, so I left it. And at the beginning, I was, I mean, it was obviously we were shocked. I wasn't so scared because I thought I'm with three power, the elite of the British Army. But then I realized quickly, most of them had never been under fire at that point ever and they'd been in Northern Ireland and doing different things but they'd not been in something like that and we were all in different places the radios didn't work and it quite quickly became clear that we were completely surrounded by Taliban because every direction we ran in we were shot at and at that point I did think how the hell are we ever going to get out of here we but I also knew I really didn't want to die in a muddy field in Helmand at that time my son was five he was due to be six and I was due to be back shortly after that for his birthday party and honestly believe that that really was what kept me running because it was so hot we had no water it was like 
July in Helmand, 50 degrees. We're being shot at from all directions. And it was really hard running and jumping in and out of these ditches. It was like being in a First World War movie, frankly. I mean, bits of mud and bullets. I mean, how we didn't get hit. But we all just kept running. I mean, the commander said to me afterwards, he thinks if one person had been injured and we'd had to stop, we probably would have all got killed. But because we were able to keep going. And we got out in the end because the guys that had come under attack first who we'd left outside they managed to get out of their ambush and they then drove along this ridge and they could see us below and they had these 50 caliber huge guns which they then trained on one of the groups of Taliban that they could see firing on us and the fire support group guy said to me afterwards that we turned them into pink mist rather graphically and so that helped because that took away but we were still being fired at and I mean it was impressive how in the end the soldiers when they realized they weren't going to get any help because they were trying to radio for air power and were told there was nothing available they managed to then really their sort of training kicked in and managed to get us out and but we couldn't go back to our camp because there was only one way back and the Taliban would know we were going that way so even when we got out of all this which I didn't think we were going to we then had to go deeper into the desert and make a sort of camp and spend the night there so it really brought home what the hell was going on there and I think we were very lucky to to survive and actually when the commander of B Company Paddy Blair then got married a few years after that he invited me and the photographer who I was with to the wedding and his best man read a bit of my piece out in his speech which was a kind of unusual best man's speech but well when something like that happens do you want to return home for a while and not think about going out again or or what what is your kind of response that you feel I think a mixture I mean partly wanting to go partly wanting to see go to that birthday party yeah (laughs) but partly wanting to see what was going to happen you know and also it brings you very close to those soldiers when you survive something like that and so you know what would happen to them next and it was also clear that this deployment to Helmand was something very different to to what had been described by politicians. So, so partly wanting to cover that, but I did come back for the the children's party, and it was kind of bizarre because that party was on a Sunday. So my piece came out in the Sunday Times that day, and I arrived back that morning. So there was a sort of big piece about war in <laughs> Afghanistan. And and I was still covered in, I mean, I hadn't been wounded at all, but we were absolutely covered in thorns and things from scrabbling in and out of these bushes and bruises from throwing. So at this party, it seems very incongruous. I think that's one of the issues now as a foreign correspondent, like it used to take a long while to come back from places. So you had a bit of time to adjust. Now you could literally be in a war somewhere one day and back home the next next day running a children's football party and that's sometimes quite difficult to make that adjustment discombobulating yeah exactly and you mentioned Marie Colvin your former colleague who lost her life while she was reporting how is it with your family I mean 
is is there a real sense of worry? I mean, clearly something like that, and also the experience you just described. Are they still supportive of your career, or, or, do, or do they? Uh, <laughs> I say, why not stay for a few months? <laughs> well, it's what I've always done, so that's yeah. what they've always known, and I've always come back to it, and they know that I wouldn't do something stupid. And, and you know, frankly, you could walk out of the door here and be hit by a car. So, but I, you know, I don't take crazy risks, particularly since I've become a mother. And now you're chief foreign correspondent at the Sunday Times. So just kind of bring podcast to the final part, I promise. I suppose now, do you feel, you mentioned the memo you're writing at the moment to suggest places you'd like to go. Do you feel you now, and perhaps you always had it, but do you feel you'll be able to pick really the stories you want to do now? Well, (laughs) I wish that was true. I mean, in some ways now, as I said, we are doing less foreign coverage. So lots of things are not being covered. I mean... I've talked about my passion for Afghanistan. I find it very frustrating to not be there. More people are being killed. Lots of journalists, uh, women journalists and activists are being targeted at the moment. And it's barely getting reported. The American troops are about to almost all leave, which many Afghans feel is basically handing Kabul over to the Taliban. I feel we should be there reporting it. We lost a lot of British lives there apart from anything else. And I I mean, one of the frustrations I think in my career has been that we don't seem to be able to end wars anymore. So I still am covering these same things, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Zimbabwe is not a war, but it's a kind of almost the regime's war on its own people. I've been going to these places over and over again, and it almost feels like a a failure of us that if we are going there, I think if you are a foreign correspondent, you want to make a difference you want to reveal injustice to people in the hope that people do something about it and if you keep going and you believe writing your heart out to tell people back home these terrible things that are happening and then nothing changes you feel like you know what's the point of what you're you're doing and that to me that's the hardest thing to deal with in my job not the danger but the actual you know what difference is it really making to people I want to talk about your book, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield. Obviously, it's a focus on, not the feminine perspective, sounds like I'm saying it wrong, but but ultimately how women are affected by all these issues. And I wondered, I suppose, do you think it has been undercovered? And in terms of the book, what's the most memorable account that you recorded? Yeah, I absolutely think that this issue of rape in war is very undercovered. I... I think because I'm a female myself and when I started out there were very few other women in the field that I was always much more interested in what happened to women in war and spoke to women a lot but there's also I saw them as very heroic because they were the people that were you know feeding the children looking after the elderly and keeping things together while men were fighting but there's also this dark side which is the use of rape and sexual violence and I honestly believe that in the last few years, this has become an epidemic. It's happening much, much more than it used to. Of course, there has always been rape in war. You go back to the ancient Greeks and Romans and, you know, just the general chaos of war. But this is rape being used as a weapon where people are being ordered to go and rape 
people and it's a very effective weapon because it's cheap it does costs less than a kalashnikov bullet and it's a very good way of humiliating your enemy and making people leave a village and or if you're trying to change the ethnic balance impregnating women and it is really horrible i mean some of the stories that i've heard are the most heartbreaking stories that i have ever heard in my life. I mean, meeting a girl, a Yazidi girl, who told me that she was traded 12 times between ISIS fighters as if she was a goat and that she tried to kill herself and she said even death didn't want me. Or a 16-year-old, also a Yazidi girl, telling me that she was raped every night by this fat ISIS judge and that the worst night of her life was when he brought back a 10-year-old girl and she listen to that girl crying for her mother all night you know these are just totally horrendous ordeals that nobody should be going through and nobody is being brought to justice we know what happened because the Yazidis spoke about it at length to journalists like me but many others and they can't understand why they told their stories and it was difficult to tell these stories and nothing happened about it. And I find it difficult to explain to them and that in a way is why I wrote this book because I wanted to actually, the least I could do was catalogue the stories and show And rather than focusing on a few people, actually, I went to 12 different countries on five continents and spoke to hundreds and hundreds of women to show that this is something happening today in 2020 on a massive scale. And it's absolutely unacceptable. And just because it's something uncomfortable to think about doesn't mean that we should just ignore it we need to be telling these stories and reporting it so that somebody does something about it what do you think the UK government could do on any of this the UK government you know they made a big thing William Hague when he was foreign secretary was the first foreign secretary to set up a department in foreign office for prevention of sexual violence in conflict which was a really good initiative and he worked with Angelina Jolie who's also very involved in this and And to get a lot of page one coverage too (laughs) slightly (laughs) unlikely duo but you know he, he genuinely I've spoken to him about it he genuinely really cares about this issue and when he was foreign secretary every he told me every bilateral that he had he raised this issue and people were surprised they said you know you're a a man this is a woman's issue and he was like no it's not it's uh, something that affects everybody it's a national security issue but sadly since he left we've had a a number of foreign secretaries we had five in the last four years and or four in the last five years I can't keep count and others have seen it as his initiative and have not been so interested in it so the department has been really cut back And it's a shame because it was unique. Actually, the the British Army now are are taking this very seriously and have courses on it. And they train a lot of military from overseas so they also uh, highlight this. So that's good. But I'm afraid that at the moment where there is justice, it's an exception rather than the rule. Most people don't get justice. And even in things, places where this became a big international issue like Bosnia in the 1990s if you go and talk to Bosnian women survivors there they will tell you that they see their 
rapists and perpetrators in coffee shops or working in the police that they haven't been brought to justice for the most part and that is appalling so I think it really needs to have much more international focus to to try and change things and the hope is that actually Joe Biden and Kamala Harris having a woman as vice president but also not just that but as a prosecutor she was very focused on this issue of getting justice for sexual violence that that might actually make a difference it's got to be better than having a misogynist in that white house who was accused of sexual harassment and assault himself the final two questions i wanted to ask you the first was just sorry if it sounds a bit pop quiz but looking back on your journalism on your articles it it might be the book but what piece of journalism are you the most proud of do you think has had the, the most impact when you look back That's really difficult. I mean, definitely the work that I've been doing recently to try and make people more aware of just the wide-scale rape in conflict is something I really care a lot about. But I don't know, like I said to you, you're happiest in this way you feel that something's made a difference. And one of the stories I'm most was pleased about was a a story the place I found hardest to deal with is Zimbabwe strangely because I've just gone there so many times and nothing changes and it's very frustrating and I was there in 2005 when Mugabe sent in bulldozers and police and just destroyed lots of the townships and made all these people 700,000 people homeless overnight it was just astonishing and harrowing and people were so repressed that or oppressed that they only one person protested out of all that and that was very difficult to watch seeing this happening people losing everything that they had worked for and not doing anything not saying anything and I flew back via Johannesburg and a friend of mine in Johannesburg a businessman had said to me oh can you meet me because I had like the the day where I'd have just waited at the airport can you meet me because I want to show you something so so as I told you earlier I'm a great believer in sort of you know being open to things and the road not taken and I guess in journalism I've tended to go to places different to where my colleagues have gone for the most part that's not always but for the most part that's worked out well and so I went with him to see and I didn't really know what it was we were going to and he took me to a village to see a a children's roundabout (laughs) Um, I was slightly confused basically what he was working on a project it was I call it a magic roundabout which was a way of converting circular energy into vertical energy so this roundabout in a village was being used to pump water and it meant that the women in the village no longer had to walk like three hours each way to go and collect water and the children who had nothing suddenly had a roundabout to play on so it was like this perfect win-win project and even the water tower that the water was being pumped into had then advertising on it which they could be paid for so I thought how wonderful so I wrote this story and a woman in Wales called Virginia Prifty read this story and her little boy of eight had just died tragically and she was looking for a way 
of remembering him. And she read this and created something called Lawrence's Wells as a result. And they have built, I believe, more than 180 of these roundabouts in Southern Africa, saving, you know, hundreds of thousands of women from walking each day to go and get water. And and so it's that something good came out of something so sad. Just I find that, you know, that's why I do the job. And that's a nice note to kind of end the podcast on. Not the final note, because the final note is when I have to ask you, which we ask everyone, <laughs> which definitely is pop quiz if the one previously wasn't, uh, which is what's the worst advice you've ever been given? I'll probably get in trouble for this, but from foreign editors, I think. And I get quite angry about the fact, not least because I've lost colleagues, that when you're on the ground, you are the person that knows best what's happening. But there's also, you can get caught up in the situation and not make good judgments because you are just so angry about what's happening to people and you forget how dangerous the place is. So I think a foreign editor's job is to remind you of that sometimes, but also to, to listen to you about what's happening and shortly I mean I have several (laughs) examples of this but shortly after I rejoined the Sunday Times I was covering the war in Iraq in 2003 and the shock and awe campaign had just started I crossed into southern Iraq from Kuwait I was supposed to be covering what was happening in Basra and I was there's only one road when you cross that goes to there's one road goes to Baghdad, one goes to Umkasa, which had fallen that night, and one goes to Basra. And I started driving on that road. And I said to you earlier that you'd kind of develop these antennae and I just knew that something was wrong. I there were not many people, there was no signs of any troops. And it just felt wrong. And so I called my foreign editor and said that I was going to turn back. And he was a bit horrified. He said, no, you know, the MOD are reporting that US, or I think he said wires are reporting that US jets are pounding the bridges of Basra. And I said, but I'm at the first bridge and nothing's pounding anything. (laughs) There's nobody here. And he said, no, reports that the one of the, I think the 58th Division of the Republican Guard are defecting and I said you know nothing like that is happening this is not right reporting and I so I turned back on that road and went back to a kind of place a junction where there were British military police and they said to me what the hell were you doing you were way ahead of the front line down there and so I didn't quite know what to do it was Saturday I was supposed to be filing and so I was staying with them and on the way back, driving back, we had passed another vehicle, which and we'd all taped TV on our vehicles to show that we were journalists as if that somehow was going to protect us, or not realising that people would not necessarily think journalists were a good thing. And that was some friends of mine from ITN and we both stopped because we were hardly any vehicles on this road and I said to them there's nothing happening down there it's just odd people around and it doesn't feel right and they said they'd obviously been given the same information as me that we've got to keep going so they went and they were hit and Terry Lloyd was killed and I always felt that if we had continued we probably wouldn't have come back 
And so I think that was really bad advice and I'm glad I didn't follow it. I think that's the worst advice we've ever had in this podcast. Thank you, Christina. Thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you.